Probably um, on different in different levels or different areas, there's different people. I think just from a general inspiration point of view, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the US runner, Steve Prefontaine. He died in sort of the, the early half of the 1970s. He's got a couple of great documentaries, Fire on the Track and Without Limits, for anyone who's interested or might know the name. And he was, he was as well known for his uh, – he had a quote that said, you might be able to beat me, but you're going to have to bleed to do it. And I think yeah. as a young guy, I, I really admired that kind of approach. I, I love the idea of a bloke who's just going to, he was a bit of a big mouth and he was happy to lay it on the line, but he also backed it up. He was just an incredible athlete. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean. Today, my guest is Tyson Popplestone. His key topic will be discussing how footballers can avoid common pre-season running mistakes. Tyson has been involved in running and running-based sports for many years. He ran for Australia, won one of Australia's biggest 10,000-metre road races, the Victorian one-mile state trital, and many more. He's trained with distance running greats like Craig Mottram and AFL greats like Sam Mitchell. With all of his running experience, he realised that nearly every running-based sport offered a generalised training program to athletes of all different fitness levels and playing positions. With that in mind, he set out to combine his high-quality training programs with technique analysis to transform, transform every athlete's running. Highlights from today's episode. Why you, as a footballer, need to relax your upper body when sprinting. The importance of running slow to develop critical speed and to be able to recover from high-intensity efforts. Understanding the power of body intelligence and how intuition can guide your training loads chart run blocks and how they can improve a football's ability to gut run and the relax running philosophy, why it has a three-tier of its progression. Let's get into today's episode with Tyson. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Tyson. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Mate, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. I appreciate you you getting me on. I was having a bit of a surf around your YouTube channel myself and I thought, all right, there's a couple of things that we we cross off each other's lists a little bit here, so I thought it'd be worth having a chat. Absolutely, mate. No, thanks for reaching out. And how does it feel being on the other side of the podcasting setup? Someone asking you the questions. It's very relaxing, actually. I feel as though yeah. there's no stress on my side of the show. I'm constantly thinking, all right, make sure I'm paying attention to what this person's saying, but also make sure you get through the checklist. So it's nice just to be able to sit here and hear, what you, to, <laughs> hear yeah. what you have to ask. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks again, mate. And yeah, really looking forward to this chat. Like we said off air, it's a hot topic at the moment for footballers or any team-based athlete that have a winter sport in improving their aerobic capacity. And yeah, really looking forward to how they can help avoiding those pre-season mistakes, as you mentioned. But take us, give us a bit of a backstory. Take us to the very beginning, mate. At what age did you discover you had a passion for running and helping people with their running performance as well? Oh, yeah, it was actually, uh, mate, it was probably, I, I was born in 87 and I was playing Oz Kicket in 1992, like as early as I could get in there, I was pretty keen. And from a young age, my old man was a footballer and I followed in his footsteps and looked up to him like a lot of young fellas. And then I moved to WA and at about 13, I, I realized a heap of the blokes that I was playing footy with were really big. And now when they bumped me, it hurt a lot, but I was always a pretty good runner. And I thought, I think maybe I'll put a bit more focus on the running side of things and I'll let these boys do their thing. And then Mate, I went to the Western Australian State Championships in early 2000 and I had no idea 
the significance of the event or how big it was for young kids. And I was pretty fit. Like I was pretty obsessive compulsive. I think I'd go out and I'd just run a long way and probably more than most 13 year olds. And mum said to me before the race, she goes, mate, just go out and have a little bit of fun and just see how you go. And tomorrow I went out and just started running and I was sitting behind a couple of the leaders. And then at about 1500 meters in, I thought, actually, I feel pretty good here. And I thought, I'll throw in a surge and just see how we go. Mate, I managed to run away from some of these boys and a couple of boys who I knew were pretty good runners. And <laughs> that was like a, a welcome to the world of running. I thought, well, I've never had this much luck in any other sport. <laughs> we had a state champ on round one. And from that point on, I was like, all right, there's probably something to focus on a little bit here. And that stole my attention away from footy for probably the next 10, uh, 10 or 12 years where I just put a whole heap of work into it there. But it was, I found it through default in being a footballer and just being too scared to get into those big pumps, big packs, to be honest. Yeah. No, fair enough. There you go. That's a great story. I wasn't expecting that. That's that's awesome. So if, is that quite a, is that like a, a relatively normal age of when most people start getting serious with their running? Is it for most people starting at a younger age? What, what would be like football, as you mentioned, most Melbournians listening in, Oz kicked five, six, and seven. But when do runners really start to start taking running as a sport competitively? Yeah. It's a good question, man. I think probably the athletics version of Auskick is Little Ats. So you've got a lot of guys who go out there and they'll have a run around at Little Ats and it might just be a phase that they go through for a little while. It's interesting, actually, because there's so many different development rates, as you would know all about. So you'll line up as a 13-year-old against some kid that everyone's convinced is going to be a world champ. He might be running sort of 80K a week or 40K a week or whatever it is that he's doing, which to another 13-year-old kid sounds really serious. Whereas the flip side of that is you'll have little fellas like me who were just getting into it and I was still playing a bit of basketball on the side and I was still playing a bit of tennis and running wasn't the key focus. It was just probably what I was best at. So I think, I don't know, I feel like 12 to 13, there's a lot of kids making their way into the sport. And then for me personally, and it's you could, I think the average would be pretty close, there's a lot of athletes who make it their more serious sport at around 15 or 16. That was where I moved back to Victoria and my coach said playing a lot of basketball. At, yeah, at this age, it's probably best if we start trying to focus on your running and just eliminate all that extra stress on the body that and the attention that it takes away from this specific style of training. And take us back to that phase when you started putting all your energy into it. What would be a typical week? How often would you be running and what were your sort of training days? What would it look like, your schedule? Yeah, I think it's interesting in the world of running because I look back now and I can see pretty clearly that the training schedule that I was using was pretty similar to what most even top Aussie runners, actually most most runners around the world, if you're looking at Europe and America and here in Australia especially use. And that sort of, you do your longer runs, which is a Sunday, Wednesday, and maybe another easy one on Friday. And then a lot of us do our sessions on a Tuesday, a Thursday, and a Saturday uh, and varying degrees of speed and intensity and things in that. But essentially, in a nutshell, that's the Aussie training program that I've had the most to do with and seen the most over here. I think it started with Rob DiCastella, which is, yeah, as I said, three pretty solid runs or three sessions and then three longer, easier runs and then maybe a rest day in there as well or some form of cross-training just to give yourself a, a little bit of a break. And how did that then start to work towards helping athletes with their with their performance, whether it be runners or footballers like Sam Mitchell mentioned in the intro? Yeah, man, actually, I have to clarify the story with Sam. I'll tell you that. It's a funny story, actually, but I, so I pretty much got into serious running at about age 13 and or age 14, really, and then moved back over here and focused on that for the next 10 years. And within that 10 years, I spent about six of the, or five or six of those racing against the great man, Mark Glitzarves. We had a couple of really good battles, yeah. um, raced each other at the 2011 Victorian Mile Champs. And he was a big guy, he was a very good runner. And then he got drafted 
And I thought, hang on a second, I would never have picked this bloke as a potential draft pick. So I watched him with a bit of curiosity. And honestly, I just thought from a, the background, I thought we'd see him be rookie listed and then probably dropped him. We'd see him back at the running track six months later or 12 months later. And just to see the leaps and bounds that he made, I thought, well, if he can do it, surely I was a pretty good junior footballer. And so I, I didn't think about height. I'm six foot on the dot. He must be about six foot four. I think he's 200 centimeters or pretty close to it. I wasn't yeah. thinking about that. I was just thinking, oh, surely my running and my footy will get me through. So I wrote a letter to all the AFL clubs. And actually, the two clubs that got back to me was one that you're affiliated with was Melbourne. Or Paul Roos called me one day randomly. He goes, I Mate, I, I like, that's what I thought. I liked it. And I, I got pretty nervous. and pretty. I was sitting in the lounge room with my best mate. I even believe Paul Roos is on the phone. And I thought, he's taking me seriously. And so essentially, I was 26 at the time that I got that phone call. And they were looking at a New Zealand bloke. I don't know his name as a potential elite-level draft pick, which they were doing a bit of, especially in the distance running scene there. Anyway, I didn't get that opportunity, unfortunately. They went with a younger bloke, and I ended up out at Box Hill Hawks having a run around there. So mm-hmm. I think just to be taken seriously, when I was about – it must have been 25. Like, I was a little bit too late to the party. I thought if Paul Ruse has taken me seriously and Fremantle's taken me seriously, then maybe if I give it a year, I could be the, the freak show and get drafted as a really old bloke in the free yeah. world. But yeah. ended up, I ended up just doing a preseason with Box Hill Hawks, and that's where the Sam Mitchell story came in because I'd been training there for about four or five months. And one day, I, had, I didn't follow the footy scene very closely back then. This was 2014, and a new boat bloke walked into the club rooms and he was by himself. So I felt bad for him, and he looked like he didn't really know anyone or everyone was keeping their distance. I was like, oh, "Poor bugger!" Like first night here, like at least get around him and just welcome him. So I genuinely had no idea who he was, and I went up and I said, "Mate, great to have you here. If there's anything you need." Um, you just yell out. I've only been here a few months. But they're really welcoming. And I gave him, yeah. <laughs> like, like I was just trying to get around him. Anyway, uh, 15 minutes later, the club did an introduction saying we were lucky enough to have Sam Mitchell joining us, who is a Hawthorne star. That's if you've got any right. questions, make sure you go to him because he'll have a – and I went back to him and go, mate, I'm so embarrassed. I said, just, it's nothing against you. It's just my lack of involvement in the footy scene the last couple of years. I had no idea. <laughs> and as a result, the couple of weeks that he was there, it was like a – I think it was a good launch pad because he knew I, I just wasn't trying to give him a bit of love because he was Sam Mitchell. So we had yeah, a bit yeah. of an opportunity to do some running and, and some training and stuff together there. But it was, a, it was a very embarrassing introduction to who I very quickly learned was a star. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> oh, good on you, so, mate. Help. So embarrassing. Yeah, it didn't feel like good on me at the time. <laughs> and what about a strong influences you, you, that have helped either your training philosophies, you've mentioned a few different programs in the Australian way with running, but who are some strong influences of yeah, your running development and how you go about your programming today when you're working with athletes? Yeah, probably on different in different levels or different areas, there's different people. I think just from a general inspiration point of view, I don't know if you've heard of the US runner, Steve Prefontaine. He died in the early half of the 1970s. He's got a couple of great documentaries, Fire on the Track and Without Limits for anyone who's interested or might know the name, and he was as well known for his. Uh, he had a quote that said, "You might be able to beat me, but you're going to have to bleed to do it." And I think yeah. as a young guy, I, I really admired that kind of approach. I, I love the idea of a bloke who's just going to. He was a bit of a big mouth, and he was happy to lay it on the line, but he also backed it up. He was just <laughs> an incredible athlete. Um, yeah. But there was a bloke from the UK in a, probably around the same time, early seventies, Brendan Foster, maybe even late seventies, and I liked him because he was a little bit of a later addition to the world of running. And I think my personal best as a young guy were pretty good. And then I went through a real lull for a couple of years for a variety of reasons. And I would look at his time progression and I was really inspired by him because I thought if he can make the breakthroughs that he has, then maybe there's a chance that I can as well. 
But I think in terms of my coaching philosophy and interest in running technique and things, it was Joe Carmody, who was a running coach that I came and trained with when I moved from WA back to Victoria around 13 or 14. And he was, he was old school. He was about 78 years old or yeah, probably 78 years old when I started coaching, getting coached by him. And he was still doing laps of the track with beautiful technique. And he just talked a lot about running efficiency and how it's often ignored. We get mm. so caught up with what are you doing for training? How fast and far are you running? But a lot of us aren't interested in the efficiency of our movement, which is, um, it's become normal to a lot of runners, unfortunately. Whereas if you get involved in like golf or swimming or tennis, technical side of it is the one thing you want to know before you go too far into the training. So that really opened my eyes because I'd never really thought about running technique, running efficiency until I met him. So I reckon that would be the three biggest influences for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll go into a bit more detail later on with your key topic, but like for the athletes listening in that may have that sort of approach at the moment where they haven't had access to a coach perhaps, but what would be some common mistakes that you see with running technique with, I guess, non-running specific athletes like soccer yeah, and, I think and football? Yeah, they're, they're pretty similar to the world of distance running in a sense. And to break it down, and obviously this is to throw a massive big blanket over what's a quite an individualized sport is I'm really interested in the way that different athletes store tension. And you see this a lot when you, when you get into the latter parts of a game or you get into the latter parts of a race. Someone might be a smooth mover when they're jogging, but when they're under pressure or when there's some stress around them or when they're in the middle of a pack or when the pressure's on in the latter part of a game, it might be close and you've been given the ball or you've been given the opportunity to make the most of it. One of the first things you do with someone who's not aware of it is you'll store tension. You'll see that a lot of the time it's through your jaw, through your face. You'll see it through the shoulders. A lot of that classic shoulders up here. You'll see it through the fists. Like a lot of the time our hands are squeezed like this. One of the interesting thing that Joe Carmody used to get us boys to do was get us to sprint 400 meters holding an egg in each hand. And he says, oh, yeah. if you crack the egg, there's too much tension through your forehand. There's too much tension through your hand, which is always, it was always messy because as competitive 14-year-old kids, <laughs> we were doing whatever we could <laughs> to try and outrun each other. And a lot of the time that was exemplified through cracked eggs all over the track. There are a couple of things. And then there's just there's little factors that are there might be a little bit more unique to an athlete. Things from their toe strike to their heel strike to the angle that they're running on from head to toe. There's just so many little intricacies that you might not even think about, but you, you recognize when you see a beautiful looking runner. Mm. And I think it's like we're aware of it, even if we can't put words to it. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, like an Elliot Kipchoge. I don't know if you're aware of him or your listeners might not be the world record holder for the marathon. He was that guy who in the Ineos, the Nike attempt. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've seen the Nike documentary. Yeah. yeah. He ran under the, the two hour barrier and you watch him and he's 40K in and you're just like, mate, you're, you're just an incredibly smooth. You just look, you look fantastic. And yeah. There's a variety of reasons for that. And there's a variety of uh, things that you can do to not necessarily make yourself a Kipchoge, but to at least move more efficiently for your body type. And what about like from a moments that flash up front of mind in terms of highlights that you're proud of? What are some things that over your career, you know, from an athletic point of view, but also with your coaching? Yeah, I think from an athletic point of view, maybe the most memorable one for me, I've, I've probably got three and you mentioned two of the three in the introduction there. And the first one was winning the 10K at the, this is actually a photo over here. That was the 2011 Melbourne Marathon 10K. And I lined up against a bloke who had, he'd run, 28 something for 10 and I was pretty his name was Ben Ashkettle and I was lining up there thinking mate I'm a 1500 meter and I'm about to get my bloody legs blown away here 
manages to sit on him and sprinted past him about 10 seconds before that photo was taken. And that was down the home straight. <laughs> the other one was, yeah, winning the 2011 State Mile Champs over here. And the last one I reckon was, it's called the Bay Sheffield 2000 and 2009, I think it was. It's a, they call it a pro race. So you've got money up for grabs and uh, winning that one off scratch was a, was a big one. And I, I, they keep it classy there. And I had all my friends and family there. So I gave him a big fist pump with about 80 meters to go. I got fined 50 bucks for it. And, oh. <laughs> and I think that was, I said, it was the best 50 bucks I ever paid because it was <laughs> such a, it was just such a thrill to, to win such a big race or to win a race in, in front of such a big crowd. So I reckon, yeah, for various reasons, they're probably the three favorites. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's almost like the footballer just came back in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. I got way oh. too excited. <laughs> that's, that's stiff, though. I can't believe they actually followed through with a fine. I couldn't believe it's it like, either. I'd never run ridiculous. it. It's like the equivalent of the stall gift. So right. I think they're maybe a little more traditional and it's definitely not at this level, but it's almost, you know, what Wimbledon is compared to the Australian Open. You're expected yeah, to be yeah. a little bit more classy when you play there. And I think that was the etiquette. And I had no idea. I was just excited I was going to win a race in front of a couple of mates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned like being nervous, being you know, your past history, being a 1500 meter for the 10K, like for those perhaps coming into an event that is endurance-based that they're nervous for, whether it be footballs doing the 2K or yo-yo test. Like at, from a mental point of view, how do you go about getting in the zone, if you call, and to be able to obviously perform really well that day? How much it, uh, you, do you have a process from a mental point of view and uh, to get relaxed and be in that mindset to perform at your best physically? Yeah, personally, I reckon if I look back and I'm honest, that's one area of my life I probably could have put a little bit more effort into. I always look back and think, all right, the strength and conditioning side of my training could have been done more effectively. And I think the mental side of it, like I was very aware and I was very interested in mindset, but I don't think I quite realized just the stress that's alleviated when you have a pretty standard warm-up routine. I did to a degree, mm. but I think it, that fluctuated quite a lot. So mine was about an hour before a race, I would chuck some headphones in, I'd go for a 15-minute jog, I'd come back, just do a few stretches, once I'd done a few stretches, I'd just do some gradually faster strides. So probably 100 meters, maybe four of those. The first one almost like a jog, just winding the legs up. The last one almost like a sprint. Just to, I always felt like it got myself prepared a little more there. But I think in terms of just managing nerves and things like that, I didn't really have any established routines. It was just like, all right, I'll try and take my mind off the significance of this event or I'll try and listen to some music that I like. Yeah, but I think that was one area that if I'm 35 now, if I could put what I've learned in the last 10 years into my body back then, it would have been really helpful. And just one of them so simple and just challenging unhelpful thoughts for me is a really helpful one. So recognizing mm. what I was thinking, God, crap, this is a big event. I hope I don't stuff up. Mm. And just swapping that with, hey, what an opportunity. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. almost cliche and corny. And I think in schools, they call it the growth mindset. Yep. But, but for me, a little bit more of that, I think maybe could have gone a long way. That makes a lot of sense in why you're now coaching. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, I didn't yeah. answer the second part of your question there about about some of the highlights of being a coach. Honestly, it's not even with the coaching side of things. Just I've got a couple of blokes that I'm working with from the footy scene now who have been away for a few years and away from the game. And they said they've come back, they're overweight. They hadn't been able to run very well for a long time. And just having a chat to them about what it is that they've done in the past, some of their attitudes towards what preseason running is and what it should look like. And then just implementing something a little more gradually to them and just getting some feedback about how much they're enjoying it. That's been a, like a pretty big plus. It's yep. not necessarily big titles and trophies that, that get me up and about as much as he's seen a, a community level footballer just having a breakthrough in this one area of his game. Yeah, they're not dreading running. They're now actually enjoying it. 
Yeah, most of the time. There's a couple of sessions yep. on there that they still dread, but most <laughs> of the time they're, they're out there enjoying it from what I can hear, from what I can tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a massive win. And probably, unless you're a coach, you're probably not something you'd value, but I could, that completely resonates with me, mate. If you can convert someone from yeah, from hating it and being super anxious about a certain exercise, whether it be going to the gym or going for a run and to flipping it into something they're actually feeling good about doing, that's a massive win. What about on the flip side, mate? Some challenges that you've faced over your career, both in from an athletic point of view, but also career and, and business owner. And what, did you, what have you learned from a yeah. growth perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. Oh, what is this? I'd probably say uh, that running technique was definitely one of the big ones for me. I became really focused on just trying to learn to run more efficiently. I think that was a mm-hmm. huge eye-opener for me. As a young guy as well, I had a couple of little injuries. I had a stress fracture in my lower back when I was 16 or 17. And I think part of that was just because I was so disciplined when it came to getting the work done. I never had any trouble getting out the door necessarily. I'd always be pumped to get out there and push myself hard. But what I really struggled with was just the ability to go, all right, Tyce, you've worked hard. And I didn't really have a lot of guidance from my coach, Joe. He was 78, he was a little bit old school. For all his credits, he had a couple of things that I've definitely made sure I've adjusted for my own style of coaching. I didn't really have any structured rest. It was just, mm-hmm. I'll just do as much as I can for as long as I can and see how we go. And I think a lot of that just led to fatigue and frustration. So I think as I got older, I started to realize just how much running rewards consistency not just in the world of running, but in running-based sports, like whether it's footy or hockey or soccer or basketball, if you're trying to develop a base, one of the big mistakes, and you'll know all about this, especially at a community level, one of the biggest mistakes football coaches and players make is, all right, it's pre-season, we'll start with a 3K and then we'll smash ourselves for as long as we can and just hope we're good to go by round one. Yeah, So I think yeah, part of what yeah. I've learned is, I think they call it progressive overloading an athlete, so yeah. welcoming him to the sport and giving it, if they've been running once a week for the last couple of years, not going, all right, we're going to try and see how long you can maintain five days a week, but just gradually building them up to two and three, and then maybe up to four even, and then start introducing a couple of faster sessions. And then we don't want to be the fittest team in December or January. You want to be the fittest team in April for a community club. And then you want to be able to do your best to maintain that all the way through to finals and hopefully right through to the last game of the season. Whereas I think, and you know a lot about this as well, a lot of coaches will get them to round one super fit And then for whatever reason, whether it's injury or whether it's just a lack of focus, which happens so quickly for so many clubs, they go, all right, preseason's done, now we can forget about running. And you just see like a gradual decline in the performance of, especially the running performance of players, which you can argue is not a priority throughout the preseason. And to some athletes, sorry, throughout the season, to some athletes, it's probably right. But for a lot of your midfielders and your centre-half backs or forwards who are pushing up and down the ground all day, you want to make sure that they're, they're maintaining a relative high degree of fitness in and amongst their week-to-week games. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good segue for the key topic, pre-season running mistakes, mate. What are some that bring first to mind that you've experienced and what can athletes do that are listening in to correct them? Yeah, I probably probably jumped the gun there. I forgot we were going in that direction. Mate, I reckon community clubs are the biggest culprits for this. Even when I did a pre-season down with Box Hill Hawks, as good a club as they were, there was was just, hey, welcome to training. Let's go. We're all going to do eight by a K. Or we're all going to do mm. six bike. It didn't matter whether you're a full back, full forward, midfielder on the wing. It was like, all right, we'll just all do this. And later in the later in the preseason, like we we broke off into different groups and had something which I thought was a little bit more tailored to each player position. But I think to break that down for me at this time of the year, it's not about becoming a king. It's not about being a hero in October. It's just about assuming most of the players down there have had a couple of months off or maybe a couple of months lighter 
recovery from the main part of the season or their last game, just welcoming the legs back, giving them a, a, a general or a gentle build up to something more significant. My, my training programs are three phased or three tiered. So the phase that we're in right now is phase one. It's relatively easy. Most of the players look at it and they're like, mate, what have I paid for? This is a really easy training program. I'm barely breathing. I don't feel like my fitness is improving. And then I start getting a couple of sorry messages in stage two where they go, actually, I should have enjoyed stage one a little bit more. I didn't realize how good I had it. And then stage three is, it's really difficult. It's a a lot of the, over this course of these three phases, we're increasing the speed, we're decreasing the recovery. And I think just uh, giving an athlete or giving a player the understanding of why you're doing that. So to use the example of a community-based player, you go, all right, we're building an aerobic base for you here in October. And then upon that or above that, we're going to start adding in a little bit more speed, a little bit less recovery, and just watching their ability to gradually handle the changes in pace and every time is really interesting. A lot of players think, oh, I'm not as fit as I was because look how much I'm struggling with this particular recovery time. And then you get them six months later after the training they've done, hang on a second, that was tough to me when we first started phase two. Now that feels relatively easy. So I guess that goes back to what you asked as well before about some of the breakthroughs. I just love seeing... In improvements in performance, whether that's time or just ability to stay on your feet as the going gets a bit tough throughout the uh, throughout the session or sessions. And with the technical work, how does your program accommodate that? Or as a coach, if you're working with someone, let's say remotely, uh, or those listening in that want to improve their running efficiency within your, your three tiers, how do you go about technique development? Yeah, so I'm actually yeah, I've got an online technique analysis. I guess you call it a program. I'm not sure the best way to describe it. So essentially, mm. I've I got a lot of juniors actually at the moment sending through technique footage, and that's an option on my website. So for the general athlete, I'll get them to just run at about 50% pace just towards the camera, and then I'll get them to run about 50% pace with the camera held here, then run it in front of the camera, and then I'll get them to do that exact same thing at sort of 80 to 90% maximum pace. And the reason for that is – I just like to get a bit of a gauge as to how their technique or how the tension that they store changes from when they're jogging to when they're running fast. Mm. Ideally, if we can get footage of them fatigued the latter part of a session, that's even better. So what I'll do, just using the platform we transfer, I'll get them on there and then I've got a little program where I have their technique stored up on the computer and I'll watch it a few times and then I'll take some notes and then I'll essentially just break down that video for them and tell them that what I'm seeing in the areas of their technique that I think they could improve and hopefully leave them with a couple of practical strategies to actually make those changes, not just point it out. I think that's the easy part, but trying to communicate, all right, so this is what we've noticed, but this is how we change it. And I think that's the key part that I've realized over the last few years is the more difficult part because a lot of the people who have paid for the service, that like they're, they're convinced that it's going to be effective, but just trying to explain the most effective way to do it. And I always say as well, mm. consistency here is so important. Tiger Woods is one of the best golfers we've ever seen, but he still goes out for hours every day and hits golf balls because he might have an amazing golf swing, but without practice, you start to lose the, a little bit of the shine off that. So I say, I think sometimes people can feel like I'm coming down on them too hard to go, oh, look, there's a few areas that we can work on. So I like to use him as an example to say, hey, this is something we're going to have to not just improve, but we'll go back and forth to maintain over a long period of time. Yeah, so I think if we can just encourage these athletes to be consistent in how often they show up and consistent in the work that they put in with the technique. That, that's a huge advantage to a lot of community clubs at this time of the year rather than just going, yeah. all right, let's just lay it down for as long as we can, however we can. 100%. Yeah. And for the senior athletes that you work with and 
perhaps for those listening in, have you seen technical changes with them as well? Like obviously with junior, they're a bit more plastic and they're younger, but for the senior guys listening, is there hope for them to improve their efficiency? Oh, most of the blokes that I'm working with are older blokes. There's definitely there's definitely the opportunity to do it. I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the best things I've learned in the last couple of years, just around I remember being in year twelve in two thousand and five and just thinking my brain's almost fully developed. That okay, there's no more change. And then you start hearing scientists talk about neuroplasticity and your ability to be able to change it. I think it comes with commitment and con- consistency that whatever it is that you want to put your attention towards, you can make some radical changes. Like for me. I started day trading a couple of years ago on the Australian Stock Exchange. And dude, it started with me Googling what is a stock. I had no idea what it was. And I was just a, I was a deer in headlights going, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I was really attracted to just the game and the strategy and things that I'd heard were involved in it. And then I was 33 when I started that. And then before you know it now, I'm actually like, uh, I'm not a gun, but I'm a lot better than what I was. And yeah. I say that story just to say that I think regardless of what it is that we're trying to work on, if you've got the, you're aware of what it is you're trying to improve, mm-hmm. uh, keep asking questions, keep being to come back to the key word I feel of the conversation, consistency, and hopefully have someone looking over your shoulders to give you a little bit of feedback. It's uh, it's more, yeah, it's more than possible is like an understatement for how realistic it is to change the technique, change yep. the technical side of your running. And you hear different things, like different philosophies, like with anything, but with sprinting and then accelerating and jogging and all the different types of, I guess, speeds that we can run at. If you improve your the most complex, like sprinting at top speed, is that going to have a ripple effect where it moves the rest? They come along with it. If you improve your, your how fast you can run it, does that mean your jogging efficiency and everything will improve with it? Or do you need to put dedicated technique into all phases of running, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a tricky question sometimes because... Depending on who you talk to, different opinions on the best way to go about it. If you look at the average sprinter, like it's the top end speed in a game of footy is important. But what's even more important is because the top end speed's great in the first quarter or the first half of the first quarter where you're going out and you might have fresh legs and you're outrunning everyone. But then often say that there's far more growth available in a speed endurance style training session, not to, not to turn heads or not to just ignore the ability we have to change the flat out speed from zero to 20 meters. But to say, like for me, if you line me up against Box Hill Hawks back in the day, we said, all right, we're going to do an 80 meter sprint. I would have been middle of the pack. I wasn't overly fast. But in the last quarter of the last half, people would often come up to me and they go, mate, like, where did you learn to run quick? Like, how did you get your speed? And what was interesting was I was personally, and, and this isn't to say that we shouldn't do any, but personally, I wasn't doing any specific top-end speed work. Like it was incorporated into my training. What I was very good at was maintaining close to my top-end speed for four quarters of footy. So if you looked at the drop-off from me in the first quarter to the last quarter, it would have been a little bit. But in comparison to like some of the forward pockets, it was in, it was incredible. <laughs> Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, so I'm personally a big fan and I'm actually in the process of putting together an eight-week speed and agility course to target this specifically and help people with the other elements of a, a running-based sport like footy where you don't just want to run but you also want to be able to move and move effectively in different directions. But often I, my big focus is going, all right, we're going to see the biggest breakthrough for a community player if they learn to run near their top end speed for four quarters of footy. And then once they've got that down, if they want to refine even further, we can go down that avenue. But for me personally, I find it really hard to argue that top end speed is more important than really effective speed endurance over a game that goes for two hours. No, that makes a lot of sense. And what about favorite methods for those listening in methods of training? It seems like football over the last sort of 20 years, there was a lot of influence on steady state running and then 
interval-based training, high-intensity interval training has taken over. What's your take on, I imagine it's probably a mix of a bit of both, but what, yeah. what sort of a typical week look like for you or how do you phase these different training methods into your three tiers? Yeah, so if you, if, and this isn't giving away any secrets, like if you jumped onto the relaxed running training programs, you'll see that it's structured. There's four runs a week. There's an optional fourth run if you want it. And throughout the course of a pre-season, we dictate what specifically we do on the harder day. So the longer, slower element of the running doesn't change very much. You're not going to run more than 30 to 40 minutes unless you absolutely love it. Um, and it's something you just can't wait to get out there and do. For the main part of our training, so after Christmas, phase three of our training, we've got a training program we call the chart. And what the chart is, it starts, for example, like we do new training programs each year just to mix it up and keep it fresh. But the chart is, it starts with this year we're doing a 150-meter chart. So you'll start by doing a 150 meters flat out sprint as fast as you possibly can. Say you run 19 seconds for that. So for stage one of your chart, what you're going to do, you're going to go out and you're going to add eight to nine seconds on top of that. So if you're running around 27 seconds and you have 40 seconds recovery and you might do eight reps of that. So eight times 150 meters in 27 seconds with a 40 second recovery. And then say that's a Tuesday. The next Tuesday you come out and do nine. Then you'll do 10, 11, 12. Sometimes we'll do a couple of these sessions a week. And then once you get to, say, 12 or 14, we take it to round two. So all of a sudden, your recovery goes from 40 seconds to 30 seconds, and the speed that you're running goes from 28 seconds to 25 seconds. So not only is the speed that you're required to run getting a little bit quicker, but the recovery time that you have at the end of that gets a little bit less. Naturally, you start breathing a bit more, and I think that style of running it simulates that footy running a little bit more, though there's very few times in a game you're going to sprint 150 metres uh, but that speed endurance element that you're tapping into there, it, it transfers very nicely. And then we have a third stage of that as well. So that third stage, you're running about two or three seconds outside your top end pace and you have 20 seconds recovery, which is you yeah, get brutal. to eight or, eight or nine reps. And that's where I start getting a lot of the apologies of people going, mate, I thought your training was easy. This is the first time I've cried in public in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, I think, yeah, chart's probably the, most of the members over at Relax Running, they go, okay, I think chart would be the key feature of the training that, that they yeah. pay attention or that they notice. That's not something I've heard of before. So I heard you obviously hear of pyramids and bits and different methods like that, but what's a chart stand for? How does that? Oh, it's that? funny, mate. It's, it was a name that my old, that Joe Carmody used to give yeah. to our form of training as well. And he said, it just came about where he was writing out this particular style of training and he looked at it and he goes, that just looks like a chart. Yep. And for a 75-year-old bloke, that was a, a good enough description for him. So he, he had his origins in the world of football, but it, it's funny because a lot of people say, hey, can you explain to me the, you know, uh, uh, where in the science world this came from? I go, mate, it's a really boring old school story <laughs> about a bloke who had a lot of writing on a piece of paper. And you so mentioned just, four times a week and that fourth session's optional. Something I've come across over the past is people asking whether they should run six days a week, seven days a week, five of these things. So why do you think four is something you've gone with your program and Obviously, it's getting good results, but yeah, why did you go with the three as your non-negotiable and then the fourth as an option opposed to you know, someone listening in with the mindset of, I actually want to be the best I can be, I'll, I'll do, if it's four, I'll do five. What would be yeah. your answer to that? Yeah. So for me, I'm very happy for an athlete to do a little more than what it is that I've got in my program if they're fit, if they've got a bit of a history in running. So you look at my program, it's three with the optional fourth. I just think three for anyone who's really keen to improve their running is a reasonable request. So it's almost, uh, and this is generic, and that's why I have a coaching thread with a number of athletes because it's if you just want something basic to to get you going, you need a little bit of assistance, 
that style of training is going to be great. Three or four times a week is perfect. I think it's a reasonable request and you can see some really solid results, especially if before that you've been doing one or two runs. Like you'll be amazed at the breakthrough that you can have or the breakthroughs, improvements that you can see just with the consistency of essentially doubling the workload that you've been putting in up to that point. But then there's a, uh, the other side of that is a lot of players who are on the more elite side, say you box your Hawks or an AFL player, they're obviously doing like that. And you're in amongst this more than I am. They're doing their strength and conditioning work and they're doing their recovery work. So the idea of just doing running work more than four days a week, I'm sure there's plenty of arguments to suggest that it could be counterintuitive. In fact, mm. maybe diminish your ability to recover. You could teach me about this. Diminish your ability to recover effectively, which is going to impact your ability to be consistent, which is a key principle. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more, mate. It makes a lot of sense. And ultimately, you want to, like you said, there's a lot of other, it's not just running for the footballers, they're changing directions, the contact and the work they've got to be doing in the gym. So there's a lot of other stresses, like you said, plus some of them might be going to school and university work and bits and pieces. Couldn't agree more. What about for those that are following, like you said, a strength and conditioning program and their priority is the 2K time trial or the aerobic fitness, so whether it be 2K time or the coaches have just said, look, you really just need to improve your engine. Um, how would you recommend if you're coaching them with fitting in their gym work and do they do lower body weight straight after they're running, before running, the day after running? Like how do you help them with their schedule? Man, this is also another question that there's so many really smart people who have completely different opinions on what the most effective way to go about it is. So myself, I prefer that personally, and this isn't based on anything I've read. This is just based purely on anecdotal evidence, how I personally feel when I do it. If I'm in the gym right now, I go three days a week. I'm still running pretty significantly. I hate doing gym work either before or after a hard run on the same day. So for me, I like the idea if on a Tuesday, I'm going to go out and do a really hard run, then maybe on the Thursday or Wednesday, I might go out and do a pretty solid upper body session. For me, I'm still giving the legs the opportunity to recover a little bit. The upper body work's not too taxing on what I did yesterday. I like that balance. Until Stewie McSwain, who's the Aussie record holder over 1,500, held that title or held that record, a bloke by the name of Ryan Gregson ran 331. And I had him on the Relax Running podcast a year and a half ago and asked him that exact question. And he was saying, actually, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth. It was either him or a physio, Dane Verway. I could be complete confusing the two. Let's just say Ryan Gregson, to, so it doesn't look like I made a mistake. Just don't Google yeah, it. Yeah. Ryan Gregson, he preferred to do the hard work on the same day. So if he woke up on a Tuesday, it was like, we'll do a session in the morning and then that evening we'll go out and I'll do my hard work on the legs. He just liked to chunk it. From what I can tell, and I'm sure there's people that are a lot smarter than me and there's plenty of science to back up a particular approach. But for me, I, I just mentally, I, I didn't respond well to that. I didn't respond mm -hmm. well to the idea of just having such a huge day. So I often try and encourage people just to get a bit of a feel for how their body's actually going. Like, how did, do you like the idea of going to the gym and doing a run on the same day? If so, hey, give it a go. Um, yeah. If you hate it like I do, maybe try and break it down a bit because as I keep saying, I, I feel like a lot of the time the best program is the one that you can do for the longest amount of time without injury, listening to your body, trying to avoid any little conflicts that come up with muscle tension and potential injuries that, that might appear. But yeah, I think for so many athletes, we get caught up going, all right, the scientist or whoever it is, the exercise physiologist said, I have to do this, but it just feels horrible for my body. And we lose a little bit of that intuition. So I'm not sure. I'm a little bit of a feelings-based guy as well. So I feel like I'm paying a lot of attention to how I'm recovering from certain workouts. And just because it's written down on paper, it doesn't necessarily give me more confidence that it's the best thing for me. Yeah. So, mate, I think that's really good advice for anyone listening, coaches as well as athletes or parents of athletes that 
no program is should be rigid. It's a plan, but we're often, especially when you're running the actual sessions with the athletes, we're often adjusting the original plan on the fly when we're doing live sessions. So um, backing the, yeah, back yeah. the athletes in to make that call. For those of you who do love a real science-based approach and a little bit of intuition as well, as a bloke by the name of John Quinn. I don't know if you're John Quinn. Yeah, you worked with the we've had him on. For, oh, yeah, mate, legend. absolute legend of a bloke, legend yeah. of a bloke. So yeah, I've had him on a couple of times as well. And I always say that if you want to know the literature around it and you also want a really simple, practical way to implement it, he's the bloke to speak to. I'm the guy that you come and speak to if you're looking for some guidance on the running. But if you want the science behind why we do weights and gym on the same day or whatever, go to him because he's the bloke I'm getting my answers from anyway. No, well said. And what about from a, if you had to pick one distance, but for, let's say for repeat speed, like you mentioned how important that is for footy, what would be your favourite? You mentioned the 150s in the chart running. What would be your favourite distance if you could only do a, those three tiers and you could only do it off one set distance? What would be your sort of oh, bank? I would, yeah, I would say 150. Oh, and I could interchange that with 200, like that distance. And the, the reason that's the distance for me is it's far enough to get your breathing and it's far enough to feel the impacts of but it's also far enough to, or short enough that you can run at a pretty high speed. Yeah. Whereas at 50 meters, you just start getting the legs rolling a little bit. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, it was, you do 15 times 50 meters. You're like, I, I guess it wasn't the most intense session, unless you're sprinting with very little rest. I just yep. like the, just how well that 150 meter kind of fitness correlates to a game of footy. And especially if you're trying to attack or improve that speed endurance, which I was talking about earlier. Like you mentioned before, like in terms of picking your distances and then over time you'll reduce the, uh, sorry, picking your times for the distance and then you'll reduce the recovery. How are you advising the athletes to pick what time they should be working off? If that is that a percentage yeah. of a sprint or a 2K? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so it's always got to do with the time. Like all of my rep times are based off your initial sprint time. So say, for example, that you're not quite as fast and you run 25 seconds, then the idea of me getting you to run 28 seconds immediately is ridiculous because it's not taken into consideration the fact that's already three seconds outside your top end speed so for me using the 150s as the example it just starts by adding eight seconds on top of whatever time you're yeah it's not based on you know but your initial 100 percent max speed effort and then yeah, once so, you've got that locked in you can you can work backwards from there and that's is that how you would go about every so let's say you're doing 200s your first rep you're fully warmed up you do your first rep and you go a hundred percent and then for the rest of the working sets, you're adding eight seconds to the, Oh, sorry. That, no. So you're only doing that time trial one. So that's like 200 meter time. Trial. Exactly. Yeah. So you only do that once and at the start of the season. And that's to set the foundation for how fast we're going to be running and how we progress from there. Yeah. That's not something you do every session. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. And that's 150. That's, yeah. 150 is eight seconds. And then it's 10 to 11 seconds if you're stretching that out to 200. The only reason I change them each year as well is just to keep it fresh for the players. There's nothing worse than just going out there and just doing the same thing and it gets boring and you're, you're dreading it. And Yeah, so just trying to mix it and match it so the boys aren't just going through the work, or the girls for that matter as yep. well. But uh, they're getting out there, they're doing the work, they're also enjoying it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And for, before we move into wrapping up the show, is there anything that we've discussed on that key topic? Oh, sorry, anything that we've missed that you'd like to add to the show? regarding preseason mistakes often made by owls. Yeah, I just think, and maybe this is an umbrella for <clears throat> everything that we've said is, and it's a quote I've heard before, It's we often way underestimate what we're going to achieve in three weeks and, and way underestimate what we can achieve in six months. So 
My approach is, hey, slow it down a little bit. If you can, especially for your easy runs, I don't know, I don't know how you go with this. I'm a better runner than my wife, but often we'll go out for a run together and she'll look at me at 1K in and go, what are you doing? I'm warming up. And then she'll get to 2K in and go, I'm so unfit. I'm so tired. I go, you're not, you're quite fit, but you've just, you've run at a pace that you shouldn't be running at <laughs> for your fitness level. I always say, hey, the best bit of advice is on those runs, run at a pace that feels embarrassingly slow. Yeah. And then slow it down a little bit from there and just save yeah. the hard work for the charts and the sessions, which are actually scheduled to, to be difficult. Yeah. And for those that like, for me, I know I always found it hard not to, to yeah, just to be disciplined and stick to those easy runs. So for me, it would just always turn into like your wife, a, a threshold run or <laughs> yeah. get my heart rate up for, or a repeat speed session very quickly. I've got better as I've matured now to stick and keep that heart rate down. But how would you go about teaching perhaps the younger athletes that just do disregard those easy runs and turn them into a hard session, the value for them. Yeah, it's interesting. I often, I often think I'll tell you a couple of times and then I'll let you make the mistake because yep. I, I know for me, and when you're 13, it's funny because I don't know, you just, for whatever reason, we just, we're, we're young and naive and we don't really know, but we don't understand the impact of falling on their face a couple of times. Or most 13 year olds don't. I like the idea or I can recognize that in my own life, it was the things that I ignored and made the mistakes in that I should have just listened to early. So yeah, I'll say, hey, here's my opinion. And then mm. they ignore it and come back injured. I go, beautiful. It's disappointing for you, but I told you six months ago <laughs> this would happen. Yep. And it's not because yep. I'm a genius. It's because I've seen it. I've got 20 years of extra time up my sleeve and I've seen this a hundred times before. So I think just, yeah, offering some guidance and some wisdom and then being there to encourage them if and when they fall. But mm-hmm. just, yeah, hoping they, hoping you get a smart enough kid or adult for that matter who'll take what you're saying seriously. Because this is something that I preach to myself as well, especially when I'm wearing a Garmin. I'll go out and I know how good it looks to tick over at 350k pace for 10k. It always looks better when I can come home and upload that and say, nice, easy run this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the truth is, yeah, I'm just not convinced the most effective way to, to structure your week when you've got to get up and try and smash out a really hard session tomorrow. Yep, yep. And then uh, yeah, moving into more the personal side, mate, in your work life, is there anything that annoys you? Any pet peeves? Oh, dude, how long you got? So many. I've got so many things. I wish, I'm so glad my wife can't hear you asking these questions because she'll tell you what they are as well. What's a pet peeve? I struggle with admin. I really hate it. I want to just eliminate that as quickly as I possibly can, but I also want to maintain a bit of a personal touch on the program. So I am required for that side of it. Everything takes longer than you anticipate it's going to. Like I always say now, if I've got an hour job, it's going to take two and a half just because I'm always frustrated when it gets an hour and a half in. Oh, dude, I've got a million things that I could tell you about that just do my head in. The fact that I'm looking at the battery on my computer right now and thought I charged it for long enough. And it's just, <laughs> mate, there's, just end, there's an endless list of things that just absolutely pissed me off about <laughs> technology and trying to figure out I'm impatient. I want results to come quicker not just in my own business, but also in other people's running. Uh, but then in saying all of that, like the freedom that comes with doing your own thing is incredible. It's a price. I just consider it almost rent that I have to pay for running my own show. Yeah. So as much as it does my head in, it's the best job I've ever had. Rewarding. Yeah. 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 yeah most yeah. rewarding for sure. For sure. What, what about when you get a day off, mate, what do you like to do? What's your favorite way to spend a day off? Mate, I've got a, I've got two little boys now, so I've got a I've got a two and a bit year old, and I've got a actually this is a, this is actually a bit of a lie. It's a nice thing to do. I love spending time with them because I'm trying to be a good dad. Yeah. But if I have the day off, and for whatever reason their mum's taking them away somewhere, 
I just, I'm a bit of a, not an introvert, but I like my own, I, I like my own time. I go for a walk. I got a little skateboard here that I like to take out. I'm a, dude, I'm a big fan. Honestly, a lot of the time exercise is my favorite way to spend my time, which is pretty lucky. I love going to the gym, love going for a, a run, maybe a hike. Dude, yeah, there's so many, just anything physical, I'm probably going to be a fan of. Unless yep. it's road cycling. Yeah, I'm not a fan as, <laughs> as much yeah. as that. Yeah, it's funny you're speaking to most coaches. That seems to be the go, recharging the batteries, going out outdoors and, and being physical, but also just spending time with yourself. It seems to be quite a common way. I know that's one of my favorite ways to whether it be going for a surf or like you said, hike and yeah, just taking the day slow is a good thing. What about yeah. for the rest of the year, mate? What are you most excited about for wrapping up 2022? What's on the horizon for you? Outside of, I think I mentioned this to you before I hit record, mate, one of my biggest passions in the world is stand-up comedy. Like I've fallen in love with it for the last few years and I'm just starting to get a couple of decent gigs here and there. So I'm trying to just keep working at that. I've got a couple of gigs tonight that I'm heading out to. Mate, any, uh, any opportunity that I can get out and do that, I'll, uh, I'll lap up. So probably I don't have any specific dates in mind, but yeah. But just that as a general project, I'm pretty pumped about. When you say you're going to a couple of gigs, are you standing up and doing, you're running the show or you're observing and learning from other? Uh, no, nah, all of the above. So tonight I've, I've got two gigs. I've got one in Eltham. I've got one in Collingwood. So I'll get up oh, there wow. and, and say Shit. the jokes that were funny in my head when I wrote them down. And yeah. then I'll probably find out really quickly that they weren't as funny as what I thought they were. And I've got to go home and edit it. And, and try again next week. So it's just the, uh, just the edit and repeat. There's a lot of, I always, it's amazing how many correlations there are between your performance and the world of comedy, just learning from your mistakes and being consistent and seeing what the good guys are doing and trying to replicate that a little bit more. So I think yeah. being away from the world of competitive running, it's a nice little outlet. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. Oh, it's yeah, it super interesting. It's and you've just recently taken on this hobby last sort of six months. Did you say? No, actually, yeah. Uh, so I've been going nearly four years. Actually, I started the like, end of right. two thousand and eighteen. But mate, yeah, I've just I just keep falling more in love with it, which is it's like an abusive relationship. To be honest, I'll get out there sometimes, and I'm so excited to go there, and then I'll get up and say what I think's funny, and I'll just eat shit for ten minutes, and then go home, <laughs> and it's an hour and a half drive home from most of the gigs. An hour and a half to think about why it was I went. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a funny old world. But oh, dude, yeah, a lot of hate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, uh, respect to you though. That takes a lot of courage. I couldn't imagine getting up on stage and doing any, doing anything of that sort of nature. That would be a tough gig, like you said, with uh, trying to entertain people. But if it's it also would be massively rewarding, as we we're talking about with coaching before. When you nail it in in flow, I'm sure it's a fun one. That is, Eddie, and yeah, you absolutely nailed it. Because if everything just goes to absolute shit and you're driving home, at least you can say you were courageous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold your head up. I gave yeah. it a crack. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't help getting up the next morning and looking at yourself in the mirror any easier, but it's a it's a nice little thing to keep in your mind. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tyson. Thanks for jumping on, mate. It's been great to not only share insights into your coaching philosophy, but also your athletic background. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues, so it's great to hear from a coach like yourself where we're helping footballers but also athletes of all levels improve their running capacity with some of, with the wealth of your knowledge and experience. Uh, for those that want to get in touch with yourself, give us a bit of a plug with the podcast, your social media platforms, as, as well as for those interested in following those three tiers of that program we're right in October now. So it's a great time to start tier one, work themselves up throughout Christmas yeah. in terms of running capacity. Yeah. So I reckon the easiest way is just uh, relaxrunning.com. That's got a link to everything there. The Relax yep. Running Podcast, if you're interested. Yeah, as you said, we're still in the very early stages of of preseason. So anyone who's interested in 
finding out more about that, just jump over to yeah, relaxrunning.com. If you click on the memberships tab there, it'll give you a bit more of an overview of what I've put together and how it all looks. And if you've got any questions, just feel free to yeah, shoot me a message and, and ask any questions. Perfect. Awesome. And though, for those listening in, you might be driving, listen to the podcast, so don't sweat. I'll add all the links in the show notes so you'll be able to click them as soon as you park the car. And thanks for everyone that's tuned into this live show as well. If you tuned in halfway through, you'll be able to watch the full recording, which I highly recommend you do. Carson's dropped gems from the very beginning, so make sure to watch it from the very start. And they'll live on our YouTube channel until we post it on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. Our next live chat show is with Luke Rooney. That's next Tuesday, November 1st. and That'll be at 1 o'clock. So I'll see you guys then. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, mate. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that fire you up oh this one is always uh, I suppose it is um, it'll be topical for most people I think but staying in your lane and I often find that with nutrition everyone eats so everyone has an opinion and I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes yeah, game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that, um, you wish you either knew or did, um, uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah it certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just to be to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things and um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah like reset and and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about 
you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's if you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and, yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest, or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.